Hello and welcome to the JS Bach Files, episode 10. I'm Terence O'Grady and today we're going to take a look at the remaining sections from Bach's B minor Mass, starting with the Credo, or as Bach would have referred to it, the Symbolum Nicenum, the Nicene Creed. The Credo text is a long and complex one, and Bach follows common practice by dividing it into separate contrasting sections, in Bach's case, nine sections with the famous Crucifixus movement standing in the middle. There's been no little debate about how and why Bach chose to divide the text into nine sections, but that debate is a bit beyond the scope of these podcasts, and as usual, we're going to focus more on matters of form and musical style as it relates to the individual sections or movements, the first of which is the Unum Deum, which in English translation is, I believe in one God. It's set here for a five-part chorus, two violins in continuo, and some have suggested it may have been based on an earlier chorus. The meter is all abrev, and though nominally in the key of B minor, sounds, as many commentators have pointed out, like a mixolydian mode on A, that is, like a major key with a lowered seventh scale degree. We are once again in the Schiele Antico, with the fugal subject based on a Gregorian chant melody, unfolding in slower note values against a faster-moving, sometimes referred to as a walking continual bass part, the sort of active bass part often associated with the Baroque Antico style, even though unknown in the Renaissance. After the chant-based four-bar subject has been introduced by the tenors, they move on to a much more rhythmically active counter-melody against the first fugal answer by the basses at the fifth, adjusted for the difference in octaves, of course. This counter-melody is strikingly different in style. It's almost agitated leaps, presenting a huge contrast to the much more limited range of the chant melody. The altos come in next, also at the fifth, overlapping with the basses, and the first sopranos are next, coming in at the original pitch level. Finally, the second sopranos get their chance, coming in again at the fifth. One would certainly expect the exposition of this fugue theme to have been concluded at this point, with, with each of the voices having taken their turn. But Bach is not quite done. The first violins, absent until this point, come in at the fifth, followed by the second violins, three bars later, an unusual effect, and far from common in the Antico style to allow the orchestral instruments, usually relegated to simply doubling the vocal parts, to have such an important solo role. But still, Bach is not quite done. A second exposition begins in the alto, rhythmically staggered, and overlapping with the concluding imitation by the second violins, and we are on our way once again, with the other voices duly chiming in, sometimes overlapping, a device frequently referred to as stretto. But the overlapping of entrances is probably less unexpected than the fact that, this time around, the bass enters by presenting the fugue theme in augmentation, note values twice as long as they were originally. Now, this device of representing a previously heard melody in longer note values was hardly a Bach invention. It goes back to the early Renaissance, and Bach showed himself on many occasions to be a master of contrapuntal manipulations much more complex than simple augmentation. Nevertheless, it's cleverly used here and allows Bach to extend the influence of the chant melody for a greater length without simply quoting it again in its original form. Of course, a listener has to wonder if such a thing, this sort of spreading out of a subtle melody, already in longer note values to begin with, can actually be heard, if the listener doesn't have the score in hand, or perhaps is listening quite specifically for this very sort of thing. Sometimes, when a melody is presented in diminution, note values halved or otherwise shortened, 
it's perfectly audible to even a casual ear. But in a case like this, with a lot going on in the other voices, including fragmentary references to the fugue theme itself, Bach's augmentation of the final bass entrance might be hard to pick up. We'll hear the opening of the movement. next section of the credo, the Patrum Omnipotentum, translated in English as Father Almighty, Maker of Heaven and Earth, is in D major, the key having been prepared by its dominant chord of A major at the close of the previous section. The orchestra is enlarged for this movement to include three trumpets, timpani, two oboes, strings, and continuo, and once again exhibits the concerto-like independence from the voice parts and the more brilliant sonorities associated with Bach's more modern style. The movement is in the form of a fugue, once the actual subject has been introduced by the basses, but it begins with the upper voices declaiming the line Credo in Unum Deum in black chords several times against the basses' fugue theme. The fugue theme resembles a melody which Bach used in an earlier cantata, BWV 171. Although solid and aggressive enough with both triadic and octave leaps, it's not necessarily one of Bach's most memorable melodies, showing less rhythmic distinctiveness and variety than usual. Here's a simplified version. As the bass continues on with a more rhythmically varied counter-subject, the fugue theme wends its way through the other voices, tenors first, then altos and sopranos. Other motives naturally emerge from the counterpoint against it, often based to some extent on the original counter-subject. For example, here's one such rather elaborate passage in the soprano with chromatic alterations hinting at the shifts in tonality going on underneath it. As the movement proceeds, the three trumpets increasingly make their presence felt with independent fanfare-like motives and, along with the timpani making a late appearance, give the entire movement a triumphal, even regal quality appropriate to the maker of heaven and earth. We'll hear about the first half of this brief movement.
next section, Et in Unum Dominum, is a duet for soprano and alto in G major, marked andante, and features two oboes de more as well as strings and continuo. The text is a lengthy one, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, born, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation descended from heaven. Bach's treatment of this text at this point is a matter of some controversy, the details of which we can only touch lightly on. It's been suggested that in the original version of the score, the line of the credo that follows, which begins with et incarnatus est de spiritus sanctu, and which in English translation reads, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, this line was originally included in this movement, bringing it to a close. But at some point, and exactly when and why is a matter of some debate, Bach decided to treat that line separately, give it its own movement, following this one, which is how it appears in many scores and recordings. To compensate for the lost bit of text, Bach simply extended the previous text, who for us men and for our salvation descended from heaven, to cover the remaining music, even though thereby losing some opportunities for word painting of the sort Bach is so well known for, for example, linking the references to descending from heaven to descending lion in the vocal parts and orchestral accompaniment, which would not be possible if that text had simply been spread over music not originally designed for it. Was this modification, assuming it actually was a modification, an afterthought? Was it somehow planned from the beginning? The reason it was done, according to one explanation, was simply that, giving the reference to the Incarnation special treatment, that is, by providing that line with its own separate movement, was more in keeping with its importance in the Catholic tradition. So, did the original version represent more of a Lutheran perspective, and the later version, if it really was later, and that's part of the debate, represent more of a Catholic version? We really can't answer that question here, so instead let's proceed with taking a look at the musical characteristics of the movement itself. The text, as I mentioned before, is set as a duet aria for soprano and alto in an extraordinarily graceful operatic style, which, although comparable to the style heard earlier in sections such as the Christe Eleison and the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, makes a strong contrast to the first two movements of the credo. In fact, this is the third distinctively different style to be heard in just the first three sections of the credo, very much in line with the variety of approaches heard in the Kyrie and glorious sections of the Mass. The opening Ritonello presents a charmingly lyrical theme which gradually moves up the scale from the tonic G with some almost coquettish hesitations and retreats along the way, and then splits the theme into a little canon as it presents a variety of distinctive rhythms and articulation patterns. When the soprano and alto soloists enter, Bach continues the canon at the unison, the alto tagging along one beat behind the soprano. By the second bar, though, the alto has dropped down to imitate the soprano line a fourth lower, and we proceed from for some time in that manner. The oboe reintroduces the melody as the two soloists spin it out through a modulation to the key of the dominant, all based on the text translated and in one Lord Jesus Christ. At the introduction of the words translated as the only Son of God, a new repeated note motive is introduced in the soprano. As the oboes drop out, but violin one provides a new elaborate figuration-based counter-melody. 
The new vocal motive is tossed back and forth between the voices, the alto generally responding a third lower, and soon another new idea is introduced with the soprano again leading the chase. A variant of the ritonello then introduces a new version of the original vocal canon, temporarily in the key of the dominant, but turning quickly to other tonal areas and eventually ending up in E minor, where the ritonello returns again. Another variant of the vocal canon enters at the text, God of God, Light of Light, True God of True God, Born Not Made, One with the Father. When that text repeats at E minor, we hear the first homophonic use of the voices. Both soprano and alto are moving in exactly the same distinctive new rhythm, likely a word-painting reference to One with the Father, although the homophonic texture continues as the text moves on to By Whom All Things Were Made. The Ritornello theme re-enters in G, again featuring the oboes, and, against it, a new repeated note motive is heard, starting in the alto and imitated in the soprano, at the words, Who, for us men and for our salvation, descended from heaven. As the text is repeated, a new ascending theme is heard, and we move surprisingly far afield in terms of tonal centers, moving briefly through E-flat major on our way to C minor and eventually G minor. As one might expect, the references to descending from heaven are reflected by descending melodic figures in both the voices and the accompanying violins. The final Ritonello references the original theme for the last time before closing the movement on G major. We'll hear the opening Ritonello and the initial canonic imitation between the voices. Carnatus Est movement, which if truly a later addition to the B minor mass, is thought by some to be one of the last works Bach ever composed, is in the key of B minor, three four time, and including all five vocal parts, along with violins and continuo. It begins with a highly distinctive ritornello. A chord is heard on the first beat of each bar, followed by a very distinctive eighth-note melodic figure involving a large descending leap, a fourth or more, followed by a pair of ascending half-steps, a third apart. This distinctive passage continues when the voices enter, led by altos, which descend slowly in quarter notes down a tonic B minor chord. The second sopranos come in a measure later, with a similar descent down a G major chord. The first sopranos come next, descending down a leading tone seventh chord on A sharp, and finally the basses enter by descending once again down a tonic B minor chord. All of this, including the instrumental introduction, has just taken eight measures, and for the entire eight measures, the continual bass has repeated the tonic note B as a pedal beneath all of this changing harmonic activity. 
It's not unusual for Bach to use a pedal in this manner, although it is perhaps a little unusual to hear four separate chords in a row over a tonic pedal. And given the context here, it's very tempting to hear the descending triads as a continuing reference to the descent from heaven from the previous portion of the credo. Similarly, it is tempting to hear the repeated notes on the home tonic of B as representing the earth to which Christ has descended for the sake of which he was made man. We'll hear the opening of the movement. As you can hear in the tail end of my example, after the first eight bars, while we still retain the distinctive accompanying figure in the upper strings, we move away from both the pedal effect and the descending triad motive into a more homophonic but more pervasively chromatic texture that provides us with several poignant dissonances before eventually moving toward the key of the dominant, F-sharp major. But, after a brief reference to the opening Rotinello, the voices return once again with the descending triadic figures, the tenor taking the lead this time, basically recreating the opening passage in a new key. We eventually return to the original tonic of B minor, where the Rotinello returns, this time ushering in a new idea, led by the two sopranos, and involving fragments of imitation, but more importantly, leading to an emotional climax, as even the continual bass adopts the repeated Rotinello figure, creating some surprising stabs of dissonance before settling into a final cadence on B major. So, even though it is often assumed that the et incarnatus est text has been given its own separate movement as a nod to the Catholic perspective, the sometimes anguished dissonances of the last few measures might be seen as symbolically shifting the emphasis away from the incarnation as such and back to Christ's suffering and death on the cross, which could, of course, be interpreted as a tilt back to the traditional Lutheran perspective. We'll move on now to the Crucifixus movement. Along with being the most famous movement of the entire B minor mass and the centerpiece of the credo, surrounded by a symmetrical arrangement of choruses and arias, the Crucifix is probably the oldest movement in the B minor mass, composed in 1714 as the first chorus in Bach's cantata BWV1, written for the Weimar Court Chapel and represented here with few changes other than a shift in key from the original G minor to the current E minor. The text, translated into English, is, He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. The movement is based on a repeated four-measure chromatically descending bass line, often referred to as a pasacalia, which is heard 13 times beneath changing harmonies. It begins in the opening orchestral ritonello on the tonic E and eventually drops a fourth by means of half-steps introduced in the second and third bars of the pattern. This pattern has been used in similar, if not identical, form by other composers in the Baroque era, perhaps the most famous example being Purcell's aria When I Am Laid to Rest from his opera Dido and Aeneas. 
Above the chromatically descending line, the strings and flutes play a series of chords which, although not initially dissonant, are somewhat unusual in that they lack the strong sense of direction that we associate with most harmonic progressions by Bach. This is due, of course, to the descending chromatic bass, which limits the harmonic choices available to some extent. For example, on the first beat of the second bar of the pattern, there is a full diminished seventh chord on D-sharp. D-sharp, F-sharp, A, C. The chord is made up of all minor third intervals, which defines it as a full diminished seventh chord. This is a chord that would normally resolve up a half step to the tonic chord of E minor. But the Pasacaglia pattern requires that the D-sharp in the bass resolves down by half step at that point to a D-natural. And Bach, somewhat limited in his choices given the bass note, builds a B minor chord above the D, which is not the resolution we would normally expect. There are other such examples of unusual progressions within the four-bar pattern, which we won't take the time to illustrate, but suffice it to say that this sort of harmonic ambiguity is fairly short-lived. By the time bar four passes into bar five, the descending chromatic pattern is broken, and we get a conventional 5-1 cadence in E minor. When the voices enter in measure five, they do so one by one, the sopranos leading the way and followed down the line by altos, tenors, and basses, with a simple, slowly unfolding, repeated note figure, which, when the initial note is repeated across the bar line, creates a stabbing dissonance against the harmonies beneath it before falling by step to a consonant note. This sort of figure is often referred to as a musical sigh, and Bach, as well as many others, has used similar figures in other contexts to evoke pathos. In this case, the figures might better be described as weeping figures, since the emotional intensity is so great, with the orchestral accompaniment over the chromatic bass line now changed somewhat to reflect the dissonances in the melody line. We'll hear the opening of the piece with the orchestral introduction and the first eight bars after the voices enter. Various commentators have drawn attention to the fact that, as the voices enter for the second four-bar phrase, the voices enter in a different order, tenors first, followed by sopranos, basses, and altos in that order. This creates, visually, you have to be looking at a score or imagining one in your mind, the shape of a cross. Is this sort of thing a coincidence or purposeful symbolism? Probably the latter. Of course, some analysts are convinced that Bach's commitment to symbolism goes much further than the generally straightforward examples of word painting that I've pointed out from time to time, or even the sort of visual symbolism I just referred to, and extends deeply into numerological symbolism, particularly in reference to the number of notes or measures in a movement. Personally, I've never been a complete endorser of such notions, especially in their most extreme forms, but some commentators take such matters quite seriously. 
After the first two eight-bar phrases, the voice replaced the repeated sighing figures described earlier with a gradually ascending melodic line, which you heard a bit of at the end of my example, that begins in the sopranos and is picked up at least partially by the other voices. The chromatic bass line continues to be present against this new melodic idea, of course, although Bach also continues to invent some, at least partially new, harmonizations to accompany it. As the piece continues, and at each repetition of the four-bar Passacaglia pattern, Bach introduces some new melodic ideas, some of them more suspension-based and evoking once again the sighing motive mentioned earlier, and some of them once again based on gradually ascending melodic lines moving into more homophonic texture. Perhaps the most striking harmonic effects occur near the end of the movement as each voice, beginning with the soprano, introduces a long-span melodic phrase or some variation of it that features long-held suspended notes which, in their intertwining against the chromatic bass, creates some truly expressive dissonances. As the text refers for the last time to Christ's suffering and burial, the volume is softened to piano and the last four bars suggest a sense of resignation after suffering. We'll hear then the conclusion of the movement. The text for the next movement, It Resurrects It, in English translation is, And he rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. This text, not surprisingly, inspires a brilliant, triumphal movement in D major for five-part chorus, two flutes, two oboes, three trumpets, timpani strings, and continuo. After an initial homophonic statement of just two bars by all five voices in full orchestra, proclaiming Christ having risen on the third day, we hear a brief but highly energetic ritonello, complete with flashing trumpets and robust timpani, after which the text is repeated by the basses, who introduce a lively, bustling fugue theme, taken up in turn by the other four voices. After just four bars, the bustling fugal activity gives way to a return of the homophonic opening, which this time is extended and spun out, ending up eventually in A major, the key of the dominant. The opening instrumental ritonello then reappears in a somewhat more subdued version, featuring flutes and oboes, and it too is developed and extended, with the trumpets and tippany eventually contributing to the conclusion of the section. We'll hear the opening up to the first recurrence of the instrumental ritonello.
From this point on, the full chorus alternates with instrumental ritonellos, sometimes very brief and interestingly varied ones, with the chorus introducing its own variants of the first homophonic statement and at times incorporating fragments of imitative counterpoint. At one point, after having modulated to B minor and arrived at the text translated as And He Shall Come Again in Glory to Judge the Living and the Dead, the basses alone enter with an ambitious new version of the original homophonic theme and take us quickly through a series of different tonal areas before cadencing on F-sharp minor. But the new key has a very short lifespan, and the entire chorus quickly takes us back home to D major with the opening bars of the homophonic theme, which yields to the original instrumental ritornello, which itself yields to the first choral fugue, and we get the sense that we're about to reprise the entire movement. And in fact, much of the first half of the movement does return. And although the final appearance of the voices, aided and abetted by trumpets and timpani, is certainly glorious enough, the movement actually closes a bit more quietly than one might expect, with a relatively restrained instrumental ritonello taking us to the final bars. Although, as before, trumpets and timpani do eventually rally at the last second to make a noble contribution. The next movement, Et in Spiritum Sanctum, is a delightful and rather gallant-sounding bass aria interacting with two oboes de more, giving us the trio we need to suggest the Holy Trinity with which this part of the credo is primarily concerned, and with the continual bass provided by the bassoon. The text for the first part of the aria is in translation, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The opening 12-bar ritonello features a lilting 6-8 melody played by the oboes that becomes more attractive as it continues. The bass soloist enters with a slightly embellished version of the ritonello melody for four bars, after which the oboes return to finish off the section, now moving toward D major. When the oboes pick up the tune from the beginning once again, the bass shifts to a very pleasant counter-melody against it, and we proceed in much the same fashion until we encounter a contrasting section moving to F-sharp minor, where the text continues, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Although some new melodic elements are introduced along the way, and the minor key gives the text a somewhat more serious tone, the earlier motives are still very much in evidence, especially in the accompanying oboe parts. After another brief ritornello, the text continues with, who has spoken of the prophets. As we come to the final line of the text, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we return to our original and much brighter key of A major. The oboes return to earlier melodic ideas, while the bass solo spins a somewhat more active counterline against them. The oboes then continue to finish off the movement with one last glance at our charming ritonello melody. We'll hear the opening ritonello and the first bass entrance. Mm-hmm. 
The next movement is the Confitior, the text of which is, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and I await the resurrection of the dead. As one might expect, we return to the Antico style here, with the full five-part chorus accompanied by a walking continual bass line. The initial fugal subject in F-sharp minor, heard first in soprano one and imitated by each of the lower voices in turn, is a bit austere, but somewhat more expansive than many in the Antico style, beginning with stepwise movement but soon introducing large and distinctive leaps. After a cadence on the dominant, a second fugal subject is introduced, rhythmically more distinctive but similar to the first in that, in the second bar, a large descending leap is immediately followed by a large ascending leap. As the movement proceeds, both subjects are reintroduced, sometimes together, and about halfway through the piece, Bach introduces a stepwise chant melody, which is then treated briefly in canon between the bass and alto voices. Later, the tenor continues this melody in longer note values, but in neither occurrence is the quoted melody easy to hear, surrounded as it is with more distinctive melodic activity. After a final reference to the sins of the world and the introduction of the words and I await the resurrection of the dead, Bach makes a dramatic shift on a full diminished seventh chord to an adagio tempo and introduces a final section, much more chromatic and tension-filled, which passes directly to the next movement. We'll hear the opening of the first fugue and a little of the second. The text for the next movement repeats the final line of the previous movement, and I await the resurrection of the dead, and adds to it the final line of the credo, and the life of the world to come. King on the final line of the text, it's no surprise that the mood of this movement is thoroughly bright and triumphant. The movement is in D major, marked vivace and allegro, and draws on the full complement of vocal and instrumental resources, five-part chorus, three trumpets, timpani, two flutes, two oboe strings, and continuo. Whenever three trumpets are prominently displayed, we often hear fanfare-like figures, and this movement embraces them with great enthusiasm right from the beginning, beneath the opening statement of the five choral voices, all of which also focus initially on triadic motives. The fanfare motives derive in part from an earlier cantata, BWV 210, celebrating the inauguration of a new Leipzig town council, probably in 1728. The initial choral statement is followed by an equally jubilant Mertonello, dominated again by the trumpets and timpani, after which the first fugue theme is introduced in the tenors. It's broadly conceived and unfolds slowly, beginning with a heroic ascending fourth. Alto second soprano spaces and finally first sopranos follow suit, but it's not long before the heraldic, fanfare-like motives from the voices as well as from the tr three trumpets join in with the timpani to dominate the proceedings. 
Shortly thereafter, a new fugue subject is introduced, quite a bit busier, rhythmically speaking, and ascending to its climax in a long curve. It begins in the altos, is joined by the first sopranos, then the tenors, second sopranos, the basses doubling them a tenth below, at least initially. After another heraldic retinello, the first fugue subject returns, although the roll call of fugal entrances is a bit different this time. But once again, fanfare-like motives soon push everything else out of the way, and we're charging through a powerful circle of fifths progression that manages to urge the already considerable momentum to a higher level. A few bars later, the texture is reduced briefly to allow a variation of the second fugal subject some breathing room as we approach the final amen. The texture soon builds powerfully, and the sopranos reach up to close to the top of their ranges to increase the brilliance of the sonority right before we drive to the climactic finish. We'll hear the triumphal opening, the first fugal section, and the beginning of the second fugal section. next movement is the traditional Sanctus, with the text, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Following the remarkably varied and altogether formidable credo, the Sanctus in D major does not have an easy task. It continues the celebratory tone, although perhaps with a little more emphasis on dignity than the almost breathless urgency of the credo's final movement. The Sanctus is in common time with six voices, dual alto parts as well as dual soprano parts this time, and sometimes divided into two choirs of three voices each. It's accompanied by the full orchestra, which is buttressed this time with three oboes. The movement is based on a setting of the same text from Christmas 1724, but with an expansion of the original choral forces. One of the first things that may strike the listener is the contrast between the almost lulling repeated eighth-note triplets sung by the voices in various combinations, often harmonized in first inversion chords, a technique that extends back to the late medieval period, and the strongly marked, almost martial-sounding rhythmic figures of the orchestral accompaniment, sometimes doubled by the basses and or the tenors. As the piece proceeds, some of the most powerful passages are those in which the upper voices sustain longer notes, while the bass line marches inexorably downward, or at times, and for shorter periods, upward. We'll hear first the opening of the movement. Thank you. 
the text changes to full are heaven and earth of your glory, we shift to 3-8 and a strongly rhythmic fugue theme heard first in the tenors, imitated then in the second altos and then in the first sopranos. Eventually, everyone joins in with the fugue subject, and as you heard, the texture becomes extremely busy. Soon, the basses introduce a new but equally busy subject, and although the texture thins out from time to time, the pace refuses to slacken from there to the end of the movement, and we conclude with a rousing finish to match anything we've heard so far. The next movement, though, Hosanna, the full text of which is simply translated as Hosanna in the highest, is written for double chorus, S-A-T-B in each, three trumpets, timpani, two flutes, two oboes, strings and continue, and is given as joyous and exhilarating a treatment as one might imagine. Not only are the two choirs used for dynamic contrasts and antiphonal effects, such as the echoing of motors or even extended passages, but also to build up massive sonorities, sometimes employing large homophonic effects, but more often by balancing two different sets of motivic ideas. The orchestral colors are also used in a more diverse way than in earlier movements. Tambors are regularly played off against each other, a pair of flutes passing on their motives to a pair of oboes, which in turn pass them on to a pair of violins and trumpets. Some parts of this movement, including the distinctive opening motive, were derived from a secular 1734 cantata, BWV 215, which Bach composed to honor the elector of Saxony, Augustus II, on the anniversary of his installation. And though this music is effective enough in that celebratory context, it is considerably more impressive in this context. The opening motive, a remarkably simple but very distinctive alternating of the root fifth and upper octave of the tonic chord in D major, is vigorously proclaimed by all eight voices in unison to start the movement. That simple motive is immediately followed by a short instrumental ritornello and then spun out and enriched with contrapuntal movement and echoing between the voices. At that point, and we're only 15 bars into the movement, the altos of choir one introduce a bustling 16th note dominated fugue subject, which is picked up immediately by the sopranos, basses, and then tenors. The fugue theme is spun out to bring our first modulation to B minor and then to G major and E minor, while the second choir chimes in with the opening motive, which it repeats in each passing key. We'll hear the opening of the movement and into the first fugue.
These ideas constitute the basic ingredients that make up the piece. As we proceed, the first chorus sometimes takes over the opening motive and its continuation, while the second chorus busies itself with fugal material. And then we switch again, the whole process energized by frequent contrast in volume from soft to loud, sometimes within the space of just a few measures. It's one of Bach's most dynamic movements, in every sense of the word, not just within the B minor mass, but in all of his sacred choral works. The next movement, the Benedictus, back in B minor and in 3-4 time, reduces the vocal and instrumental resources dramatically, as a tenor soloist is joined only by an instrumental obligato soloist, usually a flute or violin, since the instrument is not designated in Bach's score, and continual. The text in translation is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And once again, we encounter a dramatic change in style from one movement to the next. Bach's treatment of the text this time is pensive, almost subdued, although there are some passionate outbursts from time to time by the tenor soloist. The opening instrumental ritornello is quite complex and busy, dominated by undulating 16th note triplets, leading some commentators to suggest that it derives from an earlier unknown instrumental sonata. The tenor enters after 11 bars, proceeding somewhat more slowly with a somber but graceful and well-integrated melody that provides ample space for responses by the instrumental soloist, in this case a flute, before cadencing elegantly in D major. A few bars later, a ritonello, still in D major, is heard before the tenor returns with a contrasting and somewhat more dramatic passage, peaking passionately on diminished seventh chords on more than one occasion, as it hovers between E minor and B minor for a time, before finally returning permanently to the home tonic of B minor and deferring to the soloist, who concludes the movement with a variant of the opening ritonello.
After the traditional repeat of the Hosanna section after the Benedictus, we move on to the Agnus Dei, the text of which is translated as, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. The movement, assumed to be based on an aria from a lost wedding cantata of 1725, is scored for alto soloist, violins, which play in unison, and continuo, and is in the key of G minor, an unusual choice at first glance, but the D major chord on which the repeated Osana section concludes serves as its dominant so that the transition seems natural. The opening orchestral ritornello, taken at a much slower tempo than the robust Hosanna section, is dominated by a distinctive melodic figure which is somewhat reminiscent of the opening ritornello for the Et Incarnatus Est movement, with its many expressive leaps to non-harmonic tones. The alto soloist melody, when it enters, is more stepwise and employs dissonance less prominently, but, as the violins echo many of the alto's melodic figures, the result is still, if not tortured, certainly marked by a grimness suitable for depicting the sins of the world. And, after just a few bars, the alto does take up the opening motives of the ritornello. Even when the alto proceeds to depart from the original theme, the violins continually echo it and the mood is sustained. After a partial return to the ritornello, the alto returns with a variant of its previous melody. After a fermata on the dominant chord, the alto then restarts the original ritornello melody, again with a free echoing back and forth between the altos and violins figures. A brief ritornello brings to a close this most somber and atmospheric of movements. The final movement of the Mass, the Dona Nobis Pacem, is translated as Give Us Peace. In the traditional liturgy, the opening phrase of the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is twice given the response, Have mercy on us. The third time, the response is Give Us Peace, which is typically set as a separate concluding movement as it is here. 
Box setting here largely re-employs the Antico-style choral polyphony of the earlier Gratius section of the Gloria with the new text overlaid. But although this is another repurposing to some extent, it succeeds wonderfully, its smooth, seemingly effortless contrapuntal flow perfectly embodying the new text. And when the trumpets and timpani make their more boisterous contributions at the end of the movement, adding to the sense of epic composure a more regal, high baroque character, it seems the perfect ending to a powerful, of extraordinarily diverse work. We'll hear a little of the conclusion of the movement. Is this the greatest of Bach's great choral compositions, or perhaps the greatest setting of the Mass throughout history? It's almost impossible to make sensible comparisons across the centuries and many diverse styles of classical music, so perhaps it's more reasonable to ask simply where does it stand among Bach's works? And yet, even that determination represents an almost impossible challenge. The range and diversity of musical styles found in this work, something we tend to take for granted once we start getting familiar with it, is almost staggering. Yes, the work is a compilation, something Bach put together in his last years, and that, to some extent, may help to explain that stylistic diversity. But after experiencing Bach's B minor mass, it's hard to imagine what bit of that stylistic diversity might have been eliminated in order to achieve a more consistent or somehow purer style. To me, the intimacy of the arias and duets, yes, even their gallant shadings, is as essential to the work as the beautiful recreations of the Still Antico and the moments of high Baroque grandeur. It's impossible to imagine the work without any of these movements. So, is this the greatest of Bach's choral works? It is such a unique work that it almost has to stand alone, and that's where we're going to leave it. In the next episode, we'll take a look at Bach's so-called Christmas Oratorio.